What's going on guys? My name is El De Niro and welcome to episode 101 of the Midnight Hour. It's been a while, well, been longer than it usually is, I guess. We have been on a pretty good run of late. Um, I did say at the end of episode 100 that that was going to be the last one and I must have scared a couple of you because I got some messages about that. Uh, but no, this is episode 101 and it was recorded about 10 days ago. Um, but the story is I have been really, really sick, um, sicker than I've been in a long, long time. I had a chest infection which led into this cough that's still with me. It actually is still quite difficult to talk, um, but I, I literally could not even record the intro to the show. Um, every time I did, I sounded like a crying woman, quite frankly, and it just was very yucky to listen to. So anyways, um, I have a lot to say before this episode begins. The first thing is that there are several episodes of The Midnight Hour that I have planned and that I am actively working on recording with different people and guests that you won't have heard before. And I like in that kind of context, I had Zwayback on the show quite recently and it was a really good conversation um, with someone that has like a completely different YouTube audience to me and style of YouTube to me and things like that and it was just a really fruitful conversation like I really enjoyed it and I want to do more stuff like that so I've reached out to several people that you guys may or may not be familiar with and I am going to be inviting them onto the podcast I think it's the best way to keep the show going because I can't rely on the same people to come back over and over and over and like I'm sure you guys understand that I know everyone loves when there are specific guests on um, unfortunately like I can't control other people's lives so um, going forward I am really interested in using this as a platform to have really good conversations with people um, so hopefully you guys will like appreciate that and uh, will still tune in uh, even though it might not be a guest that you're particularly familiar with having said that um, Dr. John will be coming back on the show quite regularly um, I have received word from the usual guys that they'll be back for a uh, sort of year in review episode. Um, don't quote me on that. Don't hold me to that because I actually have a super busy uh, Christmas period coming up um, between work. And then there's some uh, actually some really good news in my family is that I now have uh, twin cousins uh, who were born like a couple of weeks ago. Um, but they like th that side of my family is is down south in this country and uh, I'll be going down there um so I just don't know how that's going to affect recording and things like that um but anyways um with that out of the way I also would like to draw your attention to my new wrestling podcast WWP which actually just had its first episode go live it's not properly published yet in the sense that I'm still waiting for iTunes approval um so I'm not really giving it a huge shout out. I'm not actually actively promoting it just yet. But if you guys are interested, um, I'll leave the link to the Podbean page, which is the um, the hosting site I've chosen to go with just because I've done SoundCloud with the Midnight Hour. So I'm going to try Podbean with WWP and see how that goes. Uh, so if you guys have any interest in wrestling whatsoever, if you want to prep for it, um, it's myself and my friend Miguel who appeared on, I think, episode 96 of the Midnight Hour. I'm not sure. Um, 
but we are reviewing Vengeance 2001, uh, which is just a, a pay-per-view wrestling event uh, involving Chris Jericho and several other high-profile uh, superstars. So um, if you guys are interested in that, please do check it out. And there will be more on that going forward. I'm going to get Miguel back on this show. We're going to talk a little bit about it, and then we're going to do an episode about conspiracy theories because uh, Miguel is a lot like me uh, in the sense that he just has a very um, a very like interesting outlook on conspiracy theories and uh, he approaches them from a slightly different way to how people would be used to hearing about them I suppose so um, yeah there was something else for the few hundred of you who have been uh, patiently waiting for the Walking Dead episode 3 review uh, it's not coming I'm really sorry I uh, I watched episode 3 and then I decided that I'm just done with the show um, it just does nothing for me anymore I, I don't even have any will to hate watch it anymore I, like I actually genuinely think it's terrible Um and even if like some of the magic does sort of uh, reprise itself in different episodes, I just, I don't know, I just can't be bothered to watch it. It feels like a, a complete chore. Um, so I won't be reviewing that. So sorry. Um, it's, a, it's a very, very small audience for that. Anyway, I think it was like 300 people um, across all the platforms. So um, on top of that, uh, I haven't got around to watch, uh, haven't gotten around to watching any of Stranger Things yet, apart from the first episode. So I don't know what I'll do about that. Maybe that would be better to have like a group review type thing. Uh, also, Luce Moore and Santiago will be popping back on the podcast to discuss Star Wars Episode Eight. Um, I have seen it once. I want to see it again. I have so much to say about it um, because just it's very busy. It's a very busy movie. A lot goes on in it, but I'm really, really, really excited to have those guys back, uh, and hopefully you guys are too. So all of those things are very, um, are very specific, like esoteric topics channeled towards different portions of the audience, and I respect that. So all of that stuff out of the way. Listen, this is episode 101. Uh, Michelle Mark, the um, Business Insider journalist, is back on the podcast to discuss the future of journalism with me because I have uh, several questions and, and several sort of thinking out loud moments. Uh, so uh, I think this is a really, really good conversation. Um, I'm going to leave some links in the description. So there's a thing I talk about in it. Um, I talk about this um, article from The Atlantic um, where they talk about this, uh, it's like the portrait of an American neo-Nazi. It's a guy called Andrew Al Ang Anglin, I think is his name, or Algin. I, I actually can't remember, that's terrible. Um, but he's this, like, uh, he's the guy, I think he, he founded the Daily Stormer, um, and he's, like, a, just a huge component of online uh, neo-Nazism. Um, I, I think, like, he's a white supremacist who... I think is separate from the alt-right, but also has kind of influenced several of the tactics used by the alt-right online, uh, particularly when it comes to just doing things for the lols and, and things like that. But The Atlantic did a really good piece on him. So I'm going to leave a link to that in the description because I think it's really good journalism. Um, I'll also leave a link to the New York Times and their article about a white supremacist that attracted a lot of uh, criticism um, I personally didn't really see uh, a place where the criticism was warranted, and I talk about that with Michelle, but if you guys are wondering, like, what the hell are you talking about, this is a thing that was relevant 
two weeks ago but obviously the way that news cycles nowadays are basically 15 minutes long you forget something and then you'll you'll like never remember it again it's like it's like the really the the reason that my 2018 or sorry 2017 year in review episode will be focused around movies and music is because that's the only thing that i can keep track of in a year anymore i cannot keep track of news stories and things like that like people are going to be like oh i remember fidget spinners and i'm going to be like jesus yeah completely forgot that they were a thing so um yeah, that, that's the conversation. There's something else, uh, just to explain to you guys, Michelle is technically Canadian, I guess, born to an Irish mother in Canada, but now lives in New York where she studied journalism. I, I, I can't remember too clearly, but I think there's a moment where that needs to be clarified in the conversation. Uh, so yeah, there you go. Um, I hope you guys enjoy the episode. The song that opened the episode is Heavyweight by Our Lady Peace from their 2012 album Curve. Um, it was the only way Michelle would agree to do the episode was if I used that song in the opening credits. So um, there you go. No, just kidding. I really, really like that song. Um, it's definitely the standout track of the album for me, but it also marked an actual um, palpable return to form for Our Lady Peace who had obviously four amazing albums when they started and then they went a bit nah. and then 2012 they came back with curve which was uh which was solid um so yeah i also saw them live for the first time in 2012 i think this intro has been the longest one that i've done um but i listen to a lot of podcasts and they do lots of intros like this and they even do things where they talk about their personal life and stuff that's going on like i listened to wtf with mark maron and like He'll, he'll talk for like 10 minutes at the start and he'll be like, oh, what else is going on in my life? And he'll say loads of stuff. And I feel like I'd like to do that, but I don't know that there's an appetite for that. So I've kind of ventured into my personal life a little bit more than I usually would in this episode. Um, so anyway, yeah. Another thing is I'm just really bad at finishing uh, the topic of discussion that I'm talking about at that exact moment. I can never end videos. I can never end intros. Fuck it, fade out into the episode. Please enjoy, leave a like, all of that stuff. I've been El De Niro, and I'll talk to you in like 40 seconds. power in the verse can stop me. Journalism looks to be on death's door. Um, I, I keep speaking to people who, are, who ask me, like, what would you like to do in college if you were to go back? And I always say journalism, and they always say, oh, journalism is dead. And on the face of it, it does look like it's dying in terms of the, the output of, like, spam from uh, well-respected, like, journalist websites at the moment. Just really low-quality articles and clickbait stuff. And there's even, like, articles coming out from like websites that are made to look like real journalism websites and they just have these articles that are literally written by an algorithm and things like that and mm -hmm. um it's just not really looking good for journalism can you speak to that in some way or like alleviate that fear or do you agree or like where do you see it headed yeah i mean i I sometimes hear the same thing from people who aren't involved in 
the media and I would say like like I empathize with like people's outrage at the media and the mainstream media like I work in the mainstream media and like I um and we are a joke (laughs) I'm fake news um (laughs) no like I I definitely like I I try not to take it personally and I try like very hard to not be defensive about it like I'm always a little bit confused when I hear people say that journalism is dying or journalism is dead because like I I mean I understand I think the point that they're getting at and like they're frustrated with how we cover things and they're frustrated with like like you were saying like the huge output um and like the clickbait articles but like people kind of overlook I would say the really important work that is being done. Like people are very comfortable with saying things like, um, why didn't the mainstream media like cover this? And like, they'll point to an associated press article, which is part of the mainstream media, which is where information from. And, you know, like they'll, they'll talk about that sort of stuff and they'll criticize us. And yet like, you know, a lot of like the major issues that are being talked about in the public circle are stuff that the mainstream media or the media in general, like has covered, like, you know, we wouldn't be having this massive like national and international, I guess, debate about um, sexual harassment in the workplace. If it wasn't for like, you know, the New York times doing a huge investigation into Harvey Weinstein and the New Yorker as well. Um, So I think like people, people like to overlook some of the work that the media does when it's convenient for their argument. But I would also say that it's, you know, it's fair to criticize us, obviously, and and we should be a little less defensive in, like, listening to that criticism. I also think that it's hard for, I mean, people like to just, like, kind of point a finger at, like, this general, like, media. Like, they like to say, like, oh, like, the media doesn't, like, do this right, or, like, the mainstream media, blah, blah, blah. Like, it's really hard to deal with that as, like, a member of the media because, um like, we're not a monolith. Yeah, I, I, I've, I've encountered this recently. Um, just the New York Times, the, sorry, the failing at NY Times made a, like, story about a, a profile on a neo-Nazi guy. And, mm-hmm. like, apparently they didn't criticize his beliefs enough. And so this becomes like, oh, the New York Times is, is um, what's the word? glamorizing white supremacy or they're they're making it okay they're humanizing nazis and things like that um like this is one profile made by one journalist who works in the network of new york times writers you you can't just write off the entire organization because one guy has written an article and you're angry that the subject of that article exists and like yeah. I just don't I, I can't really wrap my head around that idea like it, it's not like you say this monolithic like beacon shining out from a ivory tower saying white supremacy is okay like, that, that's just it, it, like, it's crazy and the backlash to that story was crazy and it becomes the New York Times glamorizes Nazis and that's what we take away from it I don't understand why that's the case yeah I mean yeah the debate has kind of like come into a flat circle like on that subject in particular like I would say like with the with that particular New York Times piece I think what people were very angry about was you know the New York Times has a very outsized impact on you know public debate in the U.S. and like they kind of you know being the influence that they have like they're 
you know, just this flagship organization, they, they do have an outsized impact on like the way people see things and not even just the way people see things and the way the readers perceive them, but like the way that other outlets cover similar topics. And so when they, when they do something like that, I think the fear is always like, oh, now that is the standard for, for reporting. And I think a lot of people's concern about that, that maybe didn't like translate very well was, I don't think, I don't think like the main criticism was that they like did a report on or a profile on the neo-Nazi. I think people were upset about how it was handled and the person that they assigned to write it. And I saw a lot of people saying things like, you know, the New York Times has like a lot of like very talented black journalists or Jewish journalists. Like why weren't they sent out to go cover it? And instead they sent somebody who maybe, and who like who admitted that he was a little bit out of his depth when he went to go meet the person. And he, he did an explainer um, for the Times Insider where he basically said, you know, I, I kind of came into the story like looking for something that I didn't end up finding. Like I asked all these questions and I couldn't get a simple answer as to why this person, how this person radicalized and why they hold the views that they held. And so he, I think, you know, maybe wasn't the right person to write a profile like that. And that, and like the outcome was like a piece that didn't really have much of a conclusion. And I think that's maybe like what people were angry about. Like it could have been handled so much better. Like there are a lot of examples of um, people profiling really dangerous kind of people like, um, you know, like the whole outrage over like Rachel Dolezal. Yeah. 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 Like there are a lot of profiles of her that people were similarly outraged by. But, um, wait, she's the one who was living as a black woman, but she was white, yeah, 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 yeah like, and like it prompted like a whole debate on like what is transracialism, is that a thing, and so, like you know, I don't know, like there was one kind of definitive profile that um this one woman did like fairly recently, like in recent months, and it was kind of like taken as like the definitive piece on Rachel Dolezal, like now we don't need to cover it, like this profile has been done, it like basically debunked like everything this woman has ever said. And so it's fine. Like, let's leave that out in the public square and let's be done with this issue. And so I think, like, when you have the right person covering the right issue, like, you can do a good job with it. And when you have something that, you know, like this reporter at the New York Times had where, like, he wasn't, he just wasn't really sure, like, where he was taking the piece. And he admitted that he didn't answer the questions that he was hoping to answer. Like, publications need to take a step back and say, like, maybe, maybe we don't need to run this piece or maybe we need to, like, do it in a different way, have a different person cover it, like come at it at a different point of view. Um, so like, I think, I don't know, I think, I mean, basically like to answer your questions, like I think the criticisms of that piece were, were pretty valid, but I think that kind of got lost in like the internet mob outrage against it. Yeah. That that's my sense of it too. Like I do agree with that criticism in that it was a piece that sort of went nowhere. Um, but mm-hmm. I feel like people who had that criticism are very much in the minority, and it's mostly people just writing off this entire organization based on this yeah. false pretense that it glamorizes uh, white supremacists, um, which was just not the case. Like, I read the piece, and it, it was, like, pretty bland, like, nothing happened yeah. in it. But yeah. I am also trying to 
sort of sift through the shades of gray in every story that comes out. And I think one thing that investigative journalism does really well is, is, is humanizes people who ordinarily aren't human. Like, like yeah. I, I'm a huge fan of Louis Theroux and John Ronson and they've done uh, investigations and deep dives into like weird subcultures that were previously demonized and pulled out like really interesting things that are not just, well, these, these people are all freaks or whatever. Um, and I, I think that's important to remember that people are human because if you don't recognize that you'll never like be able to change their mind in any meaningful way and I'm just not seeing much of an appetite for that kind of journalism anymore and I worry that if Louis Theroux came out nowadays if Louis Theroux never existed and he came out nowadays in the form of print would people accuse him of humanizing criminals or pedophiles or like any of the any of the pieces that he's done, he's done loads of, of deep dives into subcultures that do yeah. show um, human elements to them. And I think it's important. Um, like, I, I think it goes a long way towards quelling this kind of fear that everyone has about fascism and white supremacy at the moment as well. Um, yeah. Like, I, I can particularly remember one he did about neo-Nazis where he stayed with this guy who was supposedly the most dangerous man in America, this big white supremacist neo-Nazi guy. And and kind of the takeaway from it was that um, he was involved in a lot of groundwork on uniting people with horrible beliefs. But like one of his one of his friends, the guy who fixed his TV was like some Puerto Rican immigrant. And he was like, oh, no, this guy's fine. And he kind of just exposed him to be like a fraud, really. He was just all talk. And, and like just this old man who's lost searching for something that, you know, he, he's found a, a weird way of channeling through his racial hate or whatever it is. And, and like it's not really there. And like I definitely came away from that thinking like I, I don't really fear that sort of thing as much as I used to. I don't know if that's normal or maybe I'm weird about that, but I just think that like, you know, that's being lost and that worries me. No. And I like, I would say I've had the exact same thoughts as you about Louis through like I, and I thought, I always think about him when I see like, um, you know, people criticizing like outlets for like normalizing people with dangerous viewpoints. I mean, I think like what Louis was so like able to do is like, yeah, I mean, he exposes their humanity and he kind of makes you like understand that like these are people just like you and they obviously got to be the way they are, like, like, you know, like through some sort of process and like, doesn't that therefore mean that we're all kind of susceptible to that sort of thing? But I think like what he did so effectively that like, I'm not so sure that like some of the other like outlets do now is like, he kind of like, he kind of lets them like almost like hang themselves with their words and their arguments. Like he, he makes it as though like, like they kind of incriminate themselves and like they kind of jeopardize their own points of view, like in the way that he presents, you know, their arguments. And so I think that like, you know, with this like New York times profile in particular, and like, of course there are like other examples, but like that one is like on my brain because you, you spoke about it. I think that it didn't really necessarily like do the same thing. Like, I don't know. I think an audience, like, I don't want to say that, like, you know, their, their audience is so stupid that they would be like, oh, like, now Nazis are fine. But, you know, like, it didn't, like, it didn't, like, let him really villainize himself. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I do understand that. Um... So I think, but I do, like, no, I, I, I would say that I have the exact same question as you in that, like, 
And I don't know, is, like, Louis Theroux still, like, doing those documentaries? Yeah, <laughs> he's just there. Uh, I think he's just had a new series that premiered, like, a couple of months ago. I, I think it's, like, a, a sort of a short one. I, I think there's only a few episodes in it, but he's he has dealt with... Um, heroin addicts in this one yeah. uh, and some others I, I i actually can't watch a lot of like when i watched the he did one about crime in philadelphia and i was literally unable to watch the the heroin addicts like and how hopeless they are and how like it's all about when they can get the needle and stuff and yeah. um it makes me feel ill or something like i i get like a real like visceral reaction to it that so i, I actually can't watch a lot of his uh, stuff but I've, I've watched like the the neo-nazi one the um anything that's not about people damaging their bodies i guess i can watch but yeah because i remember and it was a few years ago when he did the neo-nazi one i remember also watching the one that he did on the westboro baptist church oh yeah like yeah it's definitely worth asking the question on whether like those would see like renewed scrutiny today yeah yeah and i feel like it would I, like um, I, I like I've long been um, uh, a devout like social justice warrior. Ultimately, like for lack of a better term, like that is what I have been. And the, the further into that sort of movement I go, like the more bullshit I see, and and the more just ridiculous reactions to things I'm noticing. And um, I I hate like beating that drum of you know, the left is irredeemable, the left is eating their own, this is how the left will die, all of that stuff. Um, mm -hmm. Because it's said by, it's said much more articulately by people much smarter than me, but it's also just a thing that everybody has to say now. But like, it is really getting to a stage where even I, <laughs> a lowly SJW, am seeing how this is kind of harmful to society in some way. And I think it ties into the death of journalism or the supposed death of journalism in a really weird way. Like... <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I feel like the left and the social justice component of the left like really needs to not be so outraged over the fact that Nazis get press coverage because it's kind of an important aspect in helping society to understand them rather than, you know, punch them or spray urine on them or like all of the other horrible tactics that are being used to shut people down instead of actually talk or find out what it is they believe and all of that stuff yeah i mean yeah that's definitely an issue that i think we all grapple with i mean it's obviously such an important thing to cover i think yeah like the tone of the coverage is something that we have to really be aware of and like who we send to cover these stories is really important like i don't know like i feel like i don't really have an answer as to the best way to do these sort of things. I mean, if I was an editor, like, I feel like at this point, like, I would, I would almost want to have somebody like exclusively on like a beat of like white nationalism and like what that movement is doing right now. Like I would want someone to be like very embedded with like what, or very like, you know, familiar with like what exactly like their ideology is. And so I think that you can't just send like, you know, some report and like the Times admitted, like when they wrote that other story, they admitted like, you know, we had um, we sent like a very talented writer who's done a lot of other good, really great work for us, like down to like cover this like one specific guy. And like, I don't know if that like really cuts it in this day and age. Like, I think 
I mean, and when you look at and when you do it like a close reading of that story, like there are so many unanswered questions about like, you know, his ideology that weren't really interrogated. Like he didn't really I mean, or at least if he did ask the questions, like it didn't really come across in like um, in the in the final write up. Like there were so many things that were left unsaid. And I think that, you know, when you're covering these types of people, like you have to do such a thorough job and you have to be extremely familiar with like like what like every single argument that they've been making, like what books have they been reading? Like where have they been getting these arguments? Like he really kind of let him get off the hook within saying like, Oh, I don't think that the internet contributed to, to my, to like my ideology that I follow now. And like that just, you know, it strikes me as like maybe not completely like the whole story. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Like, yeah, it it is kind of unlikely that someone would find their way into that way of thinking without having help along the way. But I don't know. I, I did. There was a really good piece in the Atlantic, um, the, like the portrait of an American neo-Nazi. I cannot remember the guy's name. Um, did you? Do you ever read anything from the Atlantic? This was like a. I love the Atlantic. That's yeah. That's one of my favorite outlets. Yeah, I know which one you're talking about. I can't remember who. Who wrote it as well? I don't know if it was Jeffrey Goldberg. Uh, I think. Oh, geez, I can't remember. I I think I even followed the person that wrote it. Um, but that 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 piece was like really really good and like that's sort of an example of what it should be like to do that sort of story but that the the profile that they chose to do was like really juicy like it was this guy who was a liberal and like a vegan and just had this like really strong belief in in all sorts of um like pro anarcho anarchist movements and all that stuff and then eventually <laughs> went to Indonesia or somewhere and eventually found out that he was a white supremacist. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. No, I know. Yeah. I know the story that you're talking about, like Andrew Anglin. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. That's the one. Yeah. It was just published like recently, wasn't it? Yeah. I read it in work. It was, it was really entertaining though. I was trying to think of a way that I could do like a podcast version of something like that, but then I, I don't know any neo-Nazis, so unfortunately <laughs> going to have to keep I mean, looking for that story. They're not super hard to find in, in this day and age, I suppose. I mean, I think that, like, what The Atlantic is able to do that maybe, like, a newspaper like The Times wasn't was, like, devote, like, a ton of resources and time and space yeah. to, like, a like this. Like, when you when you write for The Times, like, according to, like, the people who work at the times that I know, like you're really, you get like 2000 words. Mm. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And obviously just, they have to have a much more, um, a much quicker output and stuff like that. Like they, they probably don't get as much time to mine those stories and work on them it, by comparison. I don't know if that's true. I literally just made that up, but it sounds accurate enough. <laughs> I mean, I think with this story, um, I'm trying to remember, I think like they, they gave him, like, they sent him down there, and he spent a couple of weeks there. He also was, like, at the same time covering um, the stuff going on in Alabama uh, with Roy Moore. Oh, yeah. And so, like, I mean, it wasn't his only assignment. I mean, like, the, the Times can send somebody down and, like, dedicate a lot of resources. Like, they're a massive legacy outlet, um, but I'm not sure if that's what they did in this case. Mm-hmm. So I think, I mean, yeah, like, he was working on other stuff. Like, this wasn't his only assignment, and... Um, he did, like, I think he went back multiple times or like he interviewed the guy like a whole lot of times and spent a lot of time with him. But like, yeah, I don't know if it was like 
you know, like the right format for a story like this. I don't know if he was the right person to do it. I think there were like probably a lot of different things that could have been done with that sort of a story. But yeah, I mean, I, yeah, like you said with the Atlantic, like there's a, there's clearly like a right way and a wrong way. Yeah. That that you can tell these types of stories. Yeah, I just worry that like I, I read somewhere recently. I think I actually read this on Huffington Post. We're doing a piece about the death of journalism, which is an irony unto itself. But um, mm-hmm. there was this line that they had about like the average person spends less than fifteen seconds on every link that they click somewhere. Um, yeah, that's true. That's, we can tell that from our analytics as well. Yeah, so that that's like a real problem for journalism, and I've noticed that I've noticed. Um, I've noticed magazines, or not magazines, uh, newspapers in print in Ireland that had previously been held to a pretty high standard, like the Irish Independent, and I've mm-hmm. noticed them just become like clickbait rags, like right before my very eyes. The Independent, especially. Um, I think I might have mentioned this the last time you were on this podcast. I'm not too sure, but they they've started specializing in these stories that are like woman slips on grape, woman who slipped on grape in supermarket awarded one million euro in damages. And it's designed for people to share all over Facebook without ever reading it and say, oh, this is ridiculous. I have done something equally as as harmful as this and I've never been awarded anything. And then, like, you click the story and read it and it's like she's paralyzed from the neck down. Like, she'll never walk again. Like, she has a, a very limited, like, ability to actually live her life. And she was awarded a mere million euros, which for me would not actually be enough compensation. Um... And and people are like really angry because they they like they just do not get any context of the story. And I know that that's not the fault of the writer because the it's the editor who decides the headlines. Um, but the just the turn in this publication going from someone that I used to kind of go to for news, particularly opinion pieces and things like that, and now it is just like a disgrace. For yeah. Lack of a better word. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, I think like. Like it kind of hurts my heart to to hear something like that because um, I mean newspapers like that and like I'm not familiar with like the Irish newspaper scene but I'm gonna like assume that it's like somewhat similar to like the situation in Canada right now with newspapers where like they are losing so much money um, right. they're barely able to keep themselves afloat and like I don't really see I mean I don't know I'm I'm a little bit tuned out of like Canadian media like I I don't think I've seen like any like insane like outrageous like clickbait stories that make me think like oh that's a dishonest way of covering it but like you know like I think that a lot of those outlets are gravitating a lot toward a lot more towards um you know search engine optimization and like how can we get more readers to our websites because they like they're not making they're not making money like I they're losing subscribers like people aren't buying newspapers anymore and I mean in Canada we just had like it was just like a couple of days ago where um like two big Canadian media companies basically swapped like a whole bunch of like local daily newspapers that they owned and closed down like about 40 of them oh wow that's that's 40 daily newspapers and some of them were those free dailies that like get handed out on the subway yeah and like people like to make fun of those those dailies because like they're usually written by like one or two people who spend like two seconds on each story but like for a lot of people like that was the only way that they got their news um that was like the only outlet that was available to them and now it's gone and now like dozens or hundreds I don't know how many people were employed by those newspapers when they went under but like now all of those people are out of a job and like they're looking for more jobs 
and it's just like I mean it's it's very sad I mean so I I like I would have to say like I kind of empathize with like the independent for you know trying to attract like a little bit of a bigger audience towards their website yeah. like I'm not that's the case I mean like you know headlines do have to be short like and it's hard to squeeze context into like everything that you write and uh, like I mean I don't know I'm not familiar with like how with their workflow or like how how they frame things or how they tell their writers to frame things but like you know like people are getting pretty desperate and it's, I don't know if they, there's a really interesting thing that's happening to one of those free um ones that they hand out on the subways in in the UK uh called um it's just called Metro I think and... yeah we have I think it's the same company, actually. Oh, really? Because they, they've yeah. become like a a meta BuzzFeed at the moment, and like online, like their website is is just a, I mean, this chaotic listicle collection with like yeah. really animated title, and like it's actually kind of interesting because I would have put the Metro around that standard anyway. Like, I'm, and I'm not actually saying anything bad about BuzzFeed. Like, BuzzFeed does produce some like good quality journalism even though i i don't yeah. really like to admit that because it it's ridiculous it like it's a place where you go to find 72 cats that you won't believe eat pizza and things <laughs> like that um but seeing the metro um kind of adapt to the climate is is sort of like inspirational in a really weird way like um yeah someone yeah. in there has properly identified a problem and thought of a solution and i cannot help but admire that like that outlook that they've that they've gone through no and that's absolutely what they did and that's why you see like a lot of um online like publications in the u.s i don't know if it's the same like everywhere else but like a lot of places here are like doing the pivot to video yeah and it's not because like people like readers want video Nobody likes video. Everybody hates it. I hate video. I, like, don't even log into Facebook anymore because it's nothing but, like, fucking video. Um, like, and, you know, statistics show or, like, the data shows that, like, most people feel the same way. Like, people aren't going to watch, like, you know, even a two-minute video on a story when when they could read it because it's so much faster to just read it. But, like, I still. I find that insane. Like, I... <laughs> The um on Cracked, I used to I used to absolutely love the website Cracked. I think the first fifty episodes of this podcast are basically just me regurgitating stuff I read on Cracked. But um they do their podcast thing, and it'll come up on my Facebook suggested. It'll be like uh, uh whatever their title is, like fifty unbelievable movie scenes that were made up on the fly or whatever. And every single comment is someone saying. Why is this a fucking podcast? Say in the thing that it's a podcast. I thought it was an article. And, like, I'm just, like, you would rather read something? Like, yeah, don't no, you it's, it's true. Don't you have a commute? Like, how do, like <laughs> audio is way better than... Like, <laughs> oh, I don't know. I mean, no, I, like, I think people, like, they want something quick and, like, they want to just, like... It's, I, th I feel like it kind of gives you a little bit more control when you can, like, read something. Like, because I, you know, and I definitely would say that, like, I'm one of those people that sometimes only spends, like, 15 seconds on an article. Like, I'll scan, like, the first few graphs, and then, like, if there's something, like, in the headline that, like, I haven't, like, that hasn't that I have, that hasn't been satisfied by the first few graphs, like, I'll skim through the article, and I'll read, like, the bottom few sentences to see if it's there. And, like, you know, that's how people, like, read their stuff. So you can't do that with, like, video or audio. Like, yeah. it's just, like, 
simpler to do it when you're reading. And so like data shows us that and yet outlets pivot to video because that's where the ad dollars are. Yeah, that's another thing. Um, I did see a TED talk that was titled, we're creating a dystopia for clicks um, to, to appease advertisers basically. And like that is its own problem right there. I, I, I think I would rather watch a video, though, than read an article. Like, I, I'm definitely one of those people that's clicking an article, seeing how many wall Like, seeing this wall of text and then going, ugh. Yeah. And it's not it's not because I am a lazy person. That just happens to be a, a happy coincidence. It's mostly because I'm, like, busy or I've got other stuff to do. And it's just I'm looking for a bite-sized chunk of information yeah. that I can take in. Like, I just... I can't dedicate the time. But at the same time, I did read that piece in The Atlantic, and, and I've read a lot more um, things from that publication, and, and those are very wordy, so um, I don't know. I've talked myself into a... into a... No, like, I think that, no, like, that opinion that you just expressed is, like, like, a perfect encapsulation of, like, how people consume news and media. Like, people will spend the time absolutely on things that are worth it, and, like, they, they definitely want to do that. Like, people are hungry for information. Like, they love that stuff. And, like, that's why, like, magazines have, like, always been a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, at the same time, like, you know, when you're an online outlet, like, especially an online outlet, like, yeah, you, like, you really have to respect the reader's time. And so that's why, you know, like, the, one of the first things in journalism school that you learn is the inverted pyramid, where, like, you stack the information based not on like chronology or anything but based on what is the absolute most important information and then it goes down from there in order of importance so you always have to say like you know like what is like the main what is like the gist of the story you have to say that right away because you know that people aren't going to be like sticking around for the most part beyond those first few paragraphs or the first few seconds of them opening the article so like I mean those those things like you know people's you know, desire to like get the like the crux of the story straight away, and people's also desire to like read a long form story about something that they maybe didn't understand or that they're really interested in. Like those aren't like in conflict with each other. Like people have the capacity for both. It's just about kind of like what sort of publication like you're looking for and like what sort of audience you're serving. I mean, like the Atlantic, they know like that's their audience. They yeah. know that to them for like deep analysis on you know things that like you can't just explain away in a few paragraphs whereas like you know some of the other outlets like like buzzfeed maybe or like um like vice or you know anything anyone that's like doing a lot of like aggregation and like online work like they know that like their readers like might be a little bit different and so they have to get you know like they have to draw people in they have to use like the little I don't know. I I wouldn't even say like clickbaity headline. Like to me, a clickbait headline is something that draws the reader's attention and then fails to deliver. Like I would say that like sometimes like outlets will go with very sensational headlines, mm-hmm. but like if the story kind of lives up to the headline, like I'm okay with the sensationalization as yeah, long as you're I, I... you're not misrepresenting something. Like the the anecdote that you gave about like the woman slipping on the grape, like that to me seems like an example, a perfect example of clickbait where you open the article and it's not what had been represented. Yeah, it's it, it, it's like tabloidy though. Like it, it completely demeans the medium itself. Like I, I can, my, my favorite example of clickbait that I've ever seen was actually before the internet. It was, it was back when um, 
Pope Francis, no, not Pope, uh, Pope John Paul II had died, and I think it was Card- Cardinal Ratzinger um, who took over. <laughs> took over? Is that what a pope does? A pope take over? Whatever. Um, he. <laughs> Idea. he stepped in i suppose put on the pope's hat and the, the sun um the sun is a you, you know what the sun is don't you it's a giant ball of fire and the, no the, um oh. there's a tabloid in the uk called the sun and it's okay yeah I, I, i've heard of them yeah so they're like they're up there with with the worst and they, they had this like it, it's actually it has to be admired for just the brazenness of it and it was like church unsure on new pope and this is something that in like catholic ireland you're like whoa so like you open the thing you turn to page six or whatever the rest of the story is on it's like charlotte church says the new pope is not as good as the old pope and that's the story it's just like oh my God. that is genius like whichever journalist had the idea to be like let's find out what charlotte church thinks and then we'll run <laughs> that story like like it's it's brilliant like well done for coming up with that story but yeah so basically the independent has now lowered themselves to that standard and i cannot think of anything other than that level of of journalism when i see independent articles now because they're just yeah. like they're defacing their brand and they're if journalism is dead the independent is hell-bent on desecrating its grave and it's just horrible yeah i mean that's a real shame i mean i'm not i'm definitely not familiar at all with that publication but like i mean i just have to say that i kind of like i feel for them because they're they might be in like really dire straits financially and like losing a lot of readers and like that doesn't obviously justify like yeah like shame like terrible articles or whatever but like it sucks that like you know an article like that and this kind of goes back to like what we were saying at the beginning of the podcast like that you know people could look at one article and have their faith in like the publication just completely destroyed when the publication might also be doing a lot of like really great local that's work. true and I'm, i may very well be guilty of doing that yeah, and you said that you were annoyed by that so. yeah well there you go i am a hypocrite since a chance i mean i don't know like definitely like they should be called out for for bad articles that they run or like you know dishonest things that they do like a hundred percent but like yeah no i mean it's it's hard for me to like see people like just like throw away like you know all their good faith in a publication because of like you know one bad writer or like one bad story i mean i i remember actually like i was just talking with um our aunt una like in boston because i went there for thanksgiving yeah Like, she is one of those people who, like, and she lives in, um, oh, wait, did I already say she lives in Boston? Yeah. Yeah. So, she, like, like her and I always had this argument, like, every time every time I come over, and, like, I don't really follow through because, like, I don't want her to get mad at me because she gets, like, really, like, ferocious. But, um, <laughs> really? She, well, I mean, like, I've never really, like, disagreed with her because I'm, like, too scared. I don't know. My mom just always tells me, like, don't, like, get into anything with Una. Like, you'll be sorry. And, like, Sharon told me that, too, because I guess they've had that back-and-forth exchange. But, like, every time I go there and, like, we talk about the media, because, like, Una used to be, like, a very vociferous consumer of the news media, she always complains about the Boston Globe. And the Globe is a publication that I have always kind of admired, and I don't read them regularly because I don't live in Massachusetts. But, like, they've published, like, a lot of good work over the years. Like, I remember I first kind of got into them, like, during the Boston Marathon bombing. Oh, yeah. And they did 
really great work on that. Like such great work. And then obviously like they were the subject of that movie spotlight um, where like, you know, they had that huge investigation into the Catholic church and like the um, priests abusive children. And uh, I mean, I think it's like indisputable that they're, you know, like a generally trusted outlet that has done extremely good work in the past and continues to do good work on other things. Um, But Una like has not read them since like the early 1990s and she refuses to because she says that they're anti-Irish and like so I'm not like the thing is like I mean maybe she I don't know like I don't read them enough I haven't really read what they've said about Irish people um but like my my sense is that she is one of those people who like a lot of people in Canada saw a one column maybe that they didn't like and instantly wrote off the entire publication and all of the good work that they do. That is, uh, that is, there's this trope that I am, I'm, um, constantly talking about. It's kind of hard to, for people to understand, but there's a thing called an Irish mammy and it's, it's a mother who's Irish and just has a very weird and warped perception of the world and how things work in the world. Oh my gosh, is that a thing? Because like my mom, I, that's how I, that's what I would use to like describe my mom and also Una. Yeah, yeah, and it's and, an Irish thing. That's where it comes from. <laughs> I am pretty sure it is. Yeah, it's, it's um, extremely unique. Like they get this one idea in their heads, and like whether or not it's an accurate representation of what's going on, they will stick to that idea and apply it to <laughs> yeah. a single situation. It, it stems from this. Um, I, so. Um, I'm very familiar with the science behind it and it's basically that when a woman uh, gives birth to a kid uh, I don't know why this it has to be in Ireland maybe it's a cultural thing but once that process has happened um, the mother's priorities are all about keeping the kid safe and as a result of that that means no more consumption of media of any kind um, like complete ignorance to the arts and anything that is produced after the day of the kid's birth that is nullified has absolutely no substantial value for society whatsoever and it's overrated compared to whatever the biggest star when they were growing up is um it it, it kind of just builds on that. that that's sort of like the base level of the process um but as a result of that they just get a lot more stubborn in all of their opinions and when you try and argue those opinions with facts, you're met with even more stubbornness and, and yes. yeah. So. Okay. Well, so like maybe this is like specific to like our family or to like Irish women rather than like, you know, a greater lesson that could be applied to like media consumers. But like, I think it is, I don't know. I think it is like a valuable lesson because this also happened like in Canada as well. Like a whole, like a whole lot of people got very upset about this one Globe and Mail column one time or like something that the editorial board had written about a candidate. I think it was when, oh, it was when Justin Trudeau was um, running for prime minister and the Globe and Mail endorsed not the conservative candidate, but the conservative party basically and said, Justin Trudeau is not ready to be prime minister, but neither is the current conservative candidate. So the conservative party should like just nominate somebody else to be its leader and it was just a very strange editorial and a whole lot of people got very angry and people responded to that anger by canceling their subscriptions to the globe and mail and like that sort of damage is just so like upsetting to me because you have basically financially harmed a publication that does extremely valuable work for one editorial 
Yeah, it, it also, that exact thing sort of feeds into the Shades of Grey thing I mentioned earlier. Like, this is, like, a huge part of the way I see the world at the moment, is that I understand that people can believe the Earth is flat, but also be really intelligent, because, like, nothing is nothing follows a narrative structure like a movie and just because a person has a discrepancy or a flaw or uh, just because a person commits some kind of misdemeanor like doesn't immediately write them off and I guess I never actually thought about applying that to um, journalism as well but I, I should also add that my distrust or disdain for the independence started a long time ago with one of their yeah. columnists called Kevin Myers who um, I believe just writes controversial things for the sake of it. Like he said some very controversial things about suicide and the fact that people who commit suicide are, are glorifying depression in some way. And he said some really horrible things about um, uh, families with single parents. Um, and uh, so what I, what I originally started doing was I still bought the paper, but I just didn't read his his opinion pieces and that was fine. So um, I was definitely doing the right thing there. But then this whole thing about like people people having legitimate compensation claims and being shut down in the title as some kind of you know scrounger or welfare king or queen like i just can't get behind that um so that's just me excusing myself for what i was saying earlier but yeah the, the idea of canceling your subscription because of one thing is actually ridiculous uh, on on another hand though it's kind of it's kind of um good in a way to see people using um cancelling subscription as like a form of protest because i feel like people I, I i wish people would do that when it comes to the other things that they hate like when milo yiannopoulos is releasing a book stop talking about the book like yeah. stop making a big deal like just you know just don't give him the the publicity that he's looking for and then he won't be a problem in your life like I really wish people would get that idea through their heads, but everyone is having this race for the bottom, um, race to the bottom to see who can have like the hottest take on something, and as a result of that, every single opinion has to be used uh, and recycled and like criticized, and it just happens over and over. And like, is that relevant in some way? I guess it is because people are just constantly screaming into rubbish bins like and that's like that's basically what's happening um here's a an interesting question if yeah. journalism were to die like the the mainstream media or the msm as you'll call them if you were down with the kids um if they were to just fade away what would take its place because one of the main sort of rallying cries of the of i guess the center at the moment that's angry at the concepts of fake news and all of that stuff um, they say true journalism will take its place and it'll be on the internet only and it'll be independent and all of that stuff. Um, and like, it's it's really funny to me to imagine the internet taking over when I went from like, my perception of America was basically eight years of Barack Obama and like nice op-eds being published in the New York Times and the Washington Post and stuff like that. And then like immediately within the space of a few months of a new president, it's like, BuzzFeed releases document claiming that a tape exists of women urinating on Russian prostitutes urinating on Barack Obama's bed while President Trump watches and it's just like what like how did we get here this is ridiculous like I'm living in a dystopia somehow and I feel like if we handed the reins of journalism over to the internet it would not get any better you know what I mean 
Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question. I think, like, it sort of begs a more comprehensive description of or definition of, like, what the mainstream media is and what people mean by the death of journalism. Yeah, like, so, like one, of, one of the things that it, it makes no sense to me on one level because... Like, if you take away a publication like the Associated Press or Al Jazeera or someone like that, like, how are people on the internet going to shape our perception of international news? You know what I mean? Like, it's not... Like, some guy with a camera and a YouTube channel is not going to be able to paint a picture of the Middle East in some kind of comprehensive wire network way, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that... I mean, first of all, I think that, like, there's not much danger of the mainstream media going away because the way I see it now, they are only getting, like, stronger. Mm. Like, when I look at what's happening, um, like, not just here, also in Canada, like, there are fewer and fewer newspapers in the country. They're all closing down. They're going away. People aren't paying attention to local media. They're not, um, those publications are basically going under. And like the only thing that's left, and when I, especially when I look at my journalist friends and, you know, journalist employment trends, everybody now works for a handful of publications in New York, DC, or maybe San Francisco if you work in, like, covering the tech sector. Like, that's it. You don't, when I look at, like, where my class has gone, I don't see a whole lot of people who went out to Nebraska to work, to, like, you know, work their way up the food chain and go to the local radio stations there. Mm -hmm. I see people who are all working in maybe low-level positions at, like, CNN or the New York Times um, or outlets like that. Um so that's and that's where people are consuming their news. They're not necessarily getting it from their local outlets like they used to in previous decades. And so, like, I just don't think that, you know, the mainstream media is going to go away and be replaced by anything in particular. I think it's getting stronger. They're conglomerating. Um, those newsrooms are they appear to be sometimes getting bigger. That's and interesting it, because I, I can map the layout of the music industry and what happened to that amid the whole people downloading and streaming instead of buying records. That's sort of what happened with the music industry. The, the bigger labels, like five huge labels, and they basically swallowed up all the little labels. And all of the agents who work in the, like the smaller offices that got bought are basically just like advisory offices for the bigger places now, and that's kind of how it works. So... Um, I think they, they kept the labels open so that they could release uh, like different genres on different labels, but they're all owned by like four or five huge labels, and that's it. Yeah, so that's mostly the same in the media. I mean, I think that, I mean, I'm not really familiar with like broadcast media and like how their business models work, but it's pretty much the same way. Like the local TV stations are all affiliates of like larger stations. Yeah. But the same thing hasn't really happened with newspapers. Um, you know, newspapers have just kind of gotten smaller and smaller in those local areas and just gradually downsized, um, in some cases into like not existing at all. And so, I mean, that has like 
dramatic ramifications on communities when you're not having those watchdogs there to keep an eye on things and to report on like public you know issues of public interest yeah i never even yeah, thought of that kind of impact before no it's it's huge and i mean i'm someone like i used to work at local newspapers i mean i worked i started in journalism by working at my student newspaper at my um, alma mater but I also worked for the Edmonton Journal and I worked for the Windsor Star and like both of those are local papers. And I really got such a huge sense of like how important the newspaper and like the media was to those communities. Like I would go in on Saturday mornings um, during my internship at the Windsor Star and there would be like voicemails for me from readers suggesting that I go check out this garage sale because someone is selling World War II memorabilia and it's super cool and the Windsor Star should cover it. You know, people care uh, about... That's awesome, yeah. It is so cool. I mean, I... You know, there were a lot of bad tips there where I would go and I'd be like, oh, this is nothing. It's not a big deal. But you know, people really cared about their local newspaper and when it didn't live up to their standards, you would hear about it online. People would get extremely enraged. Um, and when they loved it, they would share it all over the place. And it would, you know, it would mean so much to the community that you covered it. That does not really happen to the same extent when you work for a national outlet that's getting read by people all over the country and the world. You know, it, um, it, it's really interesting to like, I've never really considered smaller communities like that. Like I, I kind of I come from a small town. But um, I've spent most of my life living in cities and like the importance of community is kind of lost on me. It's definitely not like a thing that I would ever prioritize or anything. Um, but I did just think of something really interesting. Um, you know how there's these apps that uh, sort of catalog things that are going on in neighborhoods now. So when you move into a neighborhood, you, you go to this app and you're basically on a forum where people post like oh, the bins are being collected, like, you know, people just... Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've heard of that sort of stuff. I've never actually had that happen for anywhere that I've been living in, but I know that, like, yeah, like some, or even some buildings will have, like, group Slack chats where, like, they tell each other news about what's happening there. Yeah, that's, it would be so good if people started consolidating that information in, like, a Welcome to Night Vale-style podcast. And that was how people started to get their news locally. It's just like yeah. weird goings on at the schoolhouse tonight as local man, like, I don't know, whatever. But like, that would be a cool step for independent reporting, I guess. I mean, and I think there's, I mean, there's a lot of value in having properly trained journalists investigating local goings on. I mean, when you don't have people covering town halls or city councils, that greatly degenerates the public debate and you know it's just upsetting i don't know it upsets me to see like the demise of local media so yeah when i hear people like complain about the demise of the mainstream media i'm like well at least like there's still a media yeah like, a lot of smaller communities don't really they don't have anything resembling that sort of coverage well what do you make of the basically dismissal of the media as fake news because the last time well the first time you came on the podcast I was sort of displaying my capacity to be a visionary because I titled it the rise of fake news and then like and then fake news turned into a huge thing just a couple months later yeah I don't feel like I've gotten enough credit for that from the mainstream no, I don't media <laughs> like, yeah I, 
Yeah, I literally titled the thing fake news, and then, like, about a month later, the world was awash with fake okay. news in their in their headlines, and, and Trump coins the term fake news. It's like, motherfucker, I was saying that, like, ugh. yeah. I know. Yeah, I know. I, I think about that all the time. <laughs> like, I'm like, remember when this wasn't a thing that proliferated our lives in every single way? Um, yeah. So this is like a I I see this. Like follow up on that because I feel like it was a very preliminary conversation that we had about what is fake news and like what are we sort of seeing in these early stages and then now everyone knows exactly what we were talking about. Yeah, and I and I have noticed that the people who bemoan the existence of fake news are very comfortable sharing topics <laughs> from those publications as long as they agree yeah. with their point and i think that kind of sums it up for me like to dismiss an entire corporation as fake news like fake news like i uh, it, yeah it, it's annoying but like to do that is just so disingenuous and it's clearly the result of like an ideologue uh moment like a, a moment of partisanship and not yeah know, it is i think i also you know, I've learned to not really feel so attacked when people scream about fake news. I mean, sometimes if I've written an article that somebody disagrees with, I get an email in my inbox or like a Twitter DM being like, you are fake news or like you know, something to that effect. Jeez. And I, I mean, I, I don't feel like defensive when I get that sort of stuff. I just feel sort of upset at, um, the, like the way that we, as the media, kind of educate people about like what news is and how it's created. Like, I think there is such, and I think I like maybe talked about this um, briefly in our, in our last podcast, but media literacy among the general population is shockingly, disturbingly low. People don't understand even people who consume a lot of media, like our aunt Una, um, don't have any media literacy at all. And so they're really unable to tell when something is fake. And so that kind of allows people to take advantage of the label fake news and apply it to institutions like the New York Times um, because they don't understand how stories are reported. Uh, and like, I don't, I mean, I don't even really like know how to fix that. Like, I think it really is something that almost has to be taught in schools. Like, people need to understand how news is created in order to, like, distinguish what is real and what isn't. And then, you know, publications need to be more transparent about how they report stories. And they need to be so much more transparent about how how they correct stories if they're if they get it wrong. Yeah, I, I, I think like the New York Times basically apologized for the quality of their journalism uh, in the wake of Trump's like election and there like there is definitely some kernel of truth in the fake news like attacks from the center and people on the right um and like even Trump's like ridiculous assertion that people citing unknown sources don't exist Mm-hmm. Um and things like that. Like I, I think there's a kernel of truth in that too. Like I, I do feel like people on CNN, um, like there's one journalist on CNN that appears on, um, that appears on like one of their talk shows or whatever, and 
cites her sources on Capitol Hill and has been doing it for like over a year and it's mm-hmm. pretty obvious that she's making it up as she goes along uh, like to suit her narrative and like that does definitely happen in in I mean it kind of has to happen to a degree but I'm um, Leah to dismiss the entire thing based on that is just so ludicrous but it does I do always think to myself like how did the mainstream media get the polls so wrong when it came to Trump and like like as much as I loathe Donald Trump and and I think him and everything he's created is just to the detriment of society I do feel like the media were absolutely deliberately skewing um, information about him in the hope that Hillary would be elected as a result of that. Like, they were trying to sort of dream a status quo into existence or something. I don't know if I'm right. That's really just a gut feeling that I have. But when you see a major publication giving him a 7% chance at winning, like, like that is ridiculous. Like, that's there's bad polling data and then there's like come on like yeah I mean so like I don't want to get too into the polling debate because like I am not a statistician and it's a really complicated subject what I will say is I think that outlets who who did give you know I think like 538 in the New York Times who and the Huffington Huffington Post who like gave him such low odds at winning like when you look at the data I mean I'm trying to think of like how it was explained to me. Like this is, it's actually so complicated. Like I don't subscribe to the idea that anyone deliberately skewed the polls to make it look as though Trump had zero chance at winning. Um, I think that there were a lot of factors that went into the polling that made it seem that way. And that the media didn't do a really good job of, of describing. I mean, yeah, like, I I can I can see that argument particularly 538 because they do famously do the like moneyball statistics and I because Hillary did win the the popular vote by 3 million so like mm-hmm. they were probably correct in in some way but then you have the whole um the what's it, the ele- the electorate college is that what it's called the electoral yeah. college um the, like the fact that that exists has got to be like a minefield for statisticians to sift through um, in yeah. order to come up with an accurate projection. And um, I mean, he, he didn't really, I mean, he, Oh, it's so hard to explain. Like, I don't want to like, it's fine. Like correctly and like botch it, but you know, it's, I mean, it's, it's just not that complicated. I mean, he did win by like a significant amount of electoral votes, but it was all in States where he had like a, a slight edge. Like I think if his, I think like the general like gist that I've gotten when you look at the numbers is that like if 85,000 people across several states had voted differently, like that would have dramatically influenced the electoral votes that he got, you know? So it came down to a very small population of people that voted the way they did because of various circumstances, like Hillary Clinton didn't visit Wisconsin or because of like the, you know, last minute Comey announcements about the investigation into her emails. And so like, you know, he, he'll say, like, what did he get? Like, 305 electoral votes, and you need 270 to win. Mm-hmm. So that's, I mean, you would say, like, that's clearly a large gap. Like, how could the polls get it so wrong? But, I mean, when you look at those states and, like, the people who voted the way they did and, like, the discrepancies in the numbers, like, 
he didn't win by an awful lot more votes and that you can see that when you look at the popular vote, like, and she won almost 3 million more than he did. And so it came down to like a very specific number of votes in a very specific number of states. And so that's what kind of is reflected when you look back at like the polling that 538 and, and everyone else did like, yeah, she had the greatest chance of winning. Like they gave her what, like a 90 or something percent chance of like, winning the presidency, but like it was hinged on such a small part of the electorate that like, yeah, that's like, that's what you were, that's what you were going to get when you looked at the polling. But like, if it went the other way, then obviously you can see how he would win something like that. Yeah. Yeah, you that know? is true. Like a really botched explanation because like, I generally know what I'm talking about, but like, I'm not a data person or statistics person, but that's, um, I mean, 538 has done like a really good set of explainers on what on how they calculated things and like what it meant and I think you know I wish I wish that we all were like a little bit more literate when it comes to statistics and polling yeah we're not built for they are of value when they're explained correctly and I remember I remember like 538 was one of the more restrained publications I think it was like the Huffington Post that said that Hillary Clinton had like a 98 or 99 percent chance of winning. And I remember the guy who does their polling, Ryan Grimm or whatever, he was very angry at 538 for giving Clinton such low odds in comparison. Wow. He was he was really, really angry. And he was like, you're deliberately misleading people and getting them upset about an election that's definitely going to go to her. And then, you know you had like Nate Silver coming out and explaining like, this is so wrong. Like there is definitely a sizable chance that he could win. Obviously the election looks far more in her favor, but there's still a sizable chance. And like to say that we're capitalizing that in order to get more viewers is just so false and insulting and disingenuous. Like I remember this whole debate because like I had to write a story about it, but yeah, I mean, it's just, yeah. I mean, basically when it comes down to it, like polling is complicated. I think like, yeah, the media did not do a good job of explaining exactly how complicated it was. And that's what happens when you kind of distill the debate down into like a horse race, like here's who's up and who's down today and what effect this particular incident had on the polls. And yeah, we didn't, I mean, like it, I don't think that it means that polls should be dismissed and not covered, but it clearly demands a reevaluation in how we understand polling. And it makes me like as a news consumer very wary whenever I see polls now. I mean, the polls today are showing that Roy Moore in Alabama is six points ahead of his Democratic opponent. Yeah. Even being allegedly a child molester. Yeah, I've seen I've seen that you were writing about Roy Moore recently and I was thinking about talking about the Roy Moore thing, and then I just get very tired. <laughs> like I feel like the news cycle and the way it is now is like it's everything gets fifteen minutes, and then you have to get angry about the next thing. But like sometimes the story is so huge that things keep getting attached to it, and it, it just it. So like fifteen minutes is up, next story is in, then that fifteen minutes is up, and oh, we're back to this again. 15 minutes has gone oh like Roy Moore like it, it gets worse and worse and worse yeah. and the only result is that his his fan his apologists just get louder and louder and yeah. you end up with this picture of a world where people would rather have 
a, a statutory rapist who groomed kids, who's banned from a certain shopping center because of his like behavior, they'd rather have that than a Democrat. And then it just yeah. like that, like, like that is not actually the real world. Like those are the words of a few insane people. Um, but the more I read this story, the more I exhale, like I must have lost like a stone in weight from just going, oh, fucking hell. like it, it <laughs> just never ends. And I just cannot believe that this is the world. And yeah, it's, it's just, I, I can't deal. I, do, do you, do you give him a good chance of winning or? Um, I mean, personally, I think it's going to be close. I think um, like I, yeah, I, I mean, and I, I know, I know I just said that we should still like look at polling and take that into consideration and stuff. I, I do like wonder about some of the polls, like not their methodology. Like I think that, you know, a lot of the polling that's been done, like are conducted by serious outlets who have good resources and do these things properly. But like, I'm not entirely sure that people are like being honest when they're answering pollsters questions like there is, and this came up even in the presidential election um, when it was a question on, you know, are people being, are people telling the truth when they're, when they're answering questions on who they're going on who they're going to vote for, because it might be, it might've been like embarrassing for some people in their perspectives to tell a pollster, yes, I'm going to vote for Donald Trump. And they might've said instead, like, no, I'm going, I'm not going to vote at all. Or like, you know, I haven't decided yet or something like that. So I wonder if something like this is going on. Like I have seen like some theories raised that like people maybe aren't answering the pollsters questions correctly because they're ashamed of voting for a Democrat. I've seen some articles where they've interviewed. No, I've seen articles where like people have gone and interviewed um, Republican women in Alabama who intend to vote for the Democrat for like in some cases the first time in their lives, but they're so ashamed of casting a vote for a Democrat that they won't even tell their husbands or they won't, you know, talk about it in public, or like they won't give their name to to the journalist that they're being interviewed by. That's, and it, uh, that reminds me of like when I have friends over and I can't let them see my YouTube history, or they'll learn that I listen to a Coldplay song. <laughs> you listen to a Coldplay song? Matthew? Don't don't panic. It's it's a good song. It might be their only good song, but which one? It's called Don't Panic. That's the name of it. It's it's the one that oh. goes like we live in a beautiful world. It's it was one of their first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I remember that one. Yeah, yeah no, I thought you were telling me to not panic. Yeah, well, also that. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is really weird that you listen to Coldplay song. It's, I mean, I don't feel good. It's, <laughs> it's, no, it's, it's okay. I also, I also listen to some Coldplay songs too. It's fine. It's 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 like how I would feel if I had a cigarette, like just terrible like you know that it's bad for you like yeah just uh, i mean that's a pretty much a perfect analogy to be honest <laughs> gives you cancer anyway <laughs> yeah um no but i think i also think like i want to highlight how interesting it is that i am talking to you an irish person in ireland about a senate race in alabama and you know every single twist and turn of the story yeah, that is like that really shows media conglomeration. To be honest, is I mean you're getting that information from national and international outlets that have been covering this entire saga, and you you're so familiar with it, even though it has zero effect on 
your life. Yeah, it's it's a good thing and a bad thing. Like I, I, I truly think it's it's a terrible thing that everyone is talking about politics all the time and specifically American politics. Like yeah. basically like Irish politics is the most boring thing ever and like we have just avoided having to have a Christmas general election in this country and to be honest, I, like, I know very little about the details. People talk to me about Irish politics, and, like, I don't even know. I spend, like, all of my time involved in American society and culture, um, and, and so do most of my friends, and all of our conversations are about American politics and things, and it's ridiculous. Like, it, so it's amazing, but it's also terrible, because we just should not be talking about politics. Like, you shouldn't ever have to speak about politics. It should just be something that goes on... Like, like, you know, it, it should be a system that works and therefore it doesn't warrant conversation. Like, it, I, I truly believe all of this, um, the spotlight being on politics all the time and people analyzing every single thing, like, it, it, it will be to the detriment of society. Like, I don't know. I, I, I don't know how I get there, but it is just so bad to me that all we can ever talk about is like the 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 guy drinking the water like in the and like and 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 I hate that people focus on that but like my god when I saw him drink that water I got so fucking angry who drinks like that or the time that he looked at the eclipse without his fucking safety glasses on like you you can't count on this guy to do fucking anything <laughs> oh, it's I don't know it's like infuriating <laughs> In a really weird way, it's having such a weird effect on the world. This the, the yeah, globalized I mean, the global the globification of news or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I would I would like agree with like that general sentiment. Like, it is kind of like strange that that's all anyone talks about ever. And Trump himself has like just soaked up like every iota of everybody's attention spans like all the time. Like, it's almost a relief when there's like a big story that isn't politics related. I'm like, yeah, like, report on the Kardashians. Like, come on, anything. Yeah. Uh, but I also, like, I, I would, like, push back a little bit. And I would say that, I mean, even, like, for myself, like, covering this administration has resulted in me and a lot of people I know understanding so much more about the democratic process than we previously did. Yeah. I mean, when I first moved here and started um, working as a reporter, I mean, and, and like, I didn't always cover politics, but I mean, I wouldn't have been able to tell you every single cabinet member um, on in Obama's administration. Like, I didn't know. I didn't know. I had no idea, like, what some of those positions were or what they did. I know all of that in Trump's administration. That's, that's I, really stupid that you didn't know that, you know, as a guy who knows all of those things. I mean, I know. I don't have to say them. I just know them. Really? Yeah. So you knew who Obama's transportation secretary was? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Um, Howard, yeah. Howard Langston, wasn't it? <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, like, and beyond just that, like, you know, we've really, I think, come to a greater appreciation of, you know, what is supposed to be considered ethical mm -hmm. in yeah. politics. Like, I never really paid much attention to it before, but, like, you know, even knowing that there's, like, you know, an office that, like, is specifically tasked with, like, giving ethics advice to the presidential administration, like, you know, that's something that people are paying attention to now. Like, we pay attention when, like, the former ethics chief, like, goes on a Twitter rant about Donald Trump. 
Like that's a thing that like people are a lot more in tuned into now. Yeah. So I mean, I don't know. I mean, yeah, there's definitely a downside. Like nobody can ever talk about anything other than Donald Trump. But at the same time, like I think it's it's worth recognizing at least that maybe people have like a better understanding of the political process and a whole lot more people are involved in activism as a result of it. So I think it's a more, I don't know, maybe it is a more slightly educated population that we have now when it comes to like politics and democracy. Yeah, it certainly is. I mean, it's weird that you know about a Senate race, you know, it's annoying though. I wish I didn't know. (laughs) <laughs> like the reason that I know is a terrible reason to know about anything. Yeah. Like I should not know that the guy who like <laughs> he, he like rode in on a horse with a cowboy hat and a Oh yeah, the interior secretary. Yeah. You know, like I, I just I should not know this. Like <laughs> this is something I should learn about from watching a Coen Brothers movie. Like it, it's <laughs> it's too far we've gone too far and and like another thing is like a lot of people say it's really healthy to have a society that questions everything like it isn't it's actually really unhealthy because now like not only do i have to you know converse with people and their ideology i have to converse with people who think that the earth is flat because they question fucking everything and everything is a reason why someone is hiding some secret and there's this major conspiratorial movement going on um yeah like it's just weird and i don't know so something about it just feels really weird i think there's plenty about the government just general people in power like are you know historically it's been proven that people abuse power like there are definitely conspiracies happening within the government but like you have like people who have legitimate voices on shows like 60 minutes and and stuff like that talking about pizzagate and like it's just bizarre and unprecedented and uh, access to as much objective truth as there has ever been in the history of the planet has somehow led to the concept of truth being bastardized and weaponized and uh it's just not looking good in some weird way like everybody has the belief that the world is going to end like there's pretty much nobody that has a positive outlook on the future anymore <laughs> like it's it's like we're all like dressed in this really weird irony like i don't know everybody feels like we are in the prelude to a post-apocalyptic tv show and that's like i don't know it's it's just really really odd to me what's happening at right now Yeah. No, I would agree. I think for me, it kind of comes back to like being literate about um, the consumption of of media and news and just information in general. I mean, when people don't understand like how something gets reported or like why something is considered like historical fact, like that does open the floodgate into, you know, their ignorance being exploited. Yeah. Like, so I don't know. It's depressing. Yeah, it's 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 like the world is now operating on the same model as um, the X Factor show, where it's like before you get to the serious people with actual talent, you you first have to go through these people who have like mental disorders and they've been told that they're great up to that point, so that they can get them on TV to laugh at them. Like that's yeah. what's happening. Except instead of everyone laughing at them, people are like. 
Hmm, there are some interesting theories about the flat earth. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's like such a good analogy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's really weird. Um, do you want to end on something completely unrelated to what we've been talking about? Yeah, what should we end on? So there's this thing that I was reading this morning um, in the news of this guy in Miami who was hospitalized. He was like unconscious and he had a history of like really bad health problems and high blood um, alcohol level. And yeah. he had no, like, identification, like, no family. They had basically nothing on this guy except for the words tattooed to his chest, do not, do not resuscitate. Yes, yeah, so interesting, hey? Yeah, it's really, really, really weird. I was reading about it, and uh, they they consulted with the ethics board, and they decided to honor the words in his tattoo. Well, I think, um, I mean, I read, I think I read the Washington Post's write-up of that story. I think they had originally agreed not to honor it because they, they didn't have his medical paperwork straight away. And then eventually they, like a social worker was able to find his proper paperwork that had the DNR on it. And uh, okay. then didn't resuscitate him. Yeah. Because the idea was that like, I mean, and I guess it's conventional medical ethics, to not take an uncertain course of action if it's completely irreversible. Yeah. And so they said there are too many uncertain factors here. We don't know why this person got this tattoo. And so it's best not to, you know, take a course of action that you can't undo. And so I think what they did was um, they gave him, they hooked him up to like, they gave him an IV, they gave him water, they didn't like, um, like do anything with his heart or anything. They just they basically tried to buy themselves some time until they could like find his actual paperwork, and then eventually they did, and like they didn't resuscitate him, and now he's dead. But like it's a really that was a really crazy case. Yeah, like the tattoo actually did have significance because it pointed them in the direction of the actual do not resuscitate order. Um, yeah, I guess, but it, it's it's. You can tell from looking at the tattoo if the one if the picture circulating online is from the actual case that that that's a tattoo that he's gotten quite recently. Yeah, and I think it also had his signature on it too. Oh yeah, that must be the bit that's blurred out on the. Yeah, yeah, it is. So I mean, if I was like, I don't know, I don't know anything about you know medical anything, but if I was a doctor and I saw that, like that would kind of give me a little bit of credence. But I think they still like wanted to be extremely cautious because you don't want to you don't want to honor something that could potentially just be the product of like someone's wild drunken rage. <laughs> Stag night or something. You know, like, oh my God. Oh my God. Yeah. That's like the greatest like thing you could do to your enemy is get him drunk and tattoo. Do not resuscitate on oh, his chest. Oh my God. But apparently that's not the first time that this issue has come up because those doctors in that case, like, they had consulted, I mean, they yeah, you, like you were saying, they consulted with their ethics board, but I think one of the doctors was quoted as saying, like, in medical school, they taught us that, like, such tattoos, like, should not be honored or whatever, and it's like, wait, this is taught in medical school? Like, there, is there a unit devoted to, like, people's possibly regrettable <laughs> do-not-resuscitate tattoos? But yeah, apparently it's something that has been litigated in the medical community enough so that they were like, yeah, okay, so let's not honor it until we get his full paperwork in. Yeah, it's 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 an interesting sort of question because on Twitter 
the like popular way of tweeting is to really emphasize all of your negative thoughts no matter how fleeting they may be so like I, I think pretty much everybody at some point in life has thought to themselves I don't want to live on this planet anymore it's it's when you read like Roy Moore's story after and you know you've read about Trump calling the North Korea guy fat and, and like all of that stuff and you just think like god this is terrible um and even if that's just for a split second if you have a twitter account you tweet that shit for numbers and it works like every time so like you have an entire platform that like uh, there's a, a like a fairly substantial segment of twitter is pretty much operated on by that principle of emphasize the negativity for likes because people understand your headspace at the time it's so, like yeah. if, if you had like a person that had a tattoo saying do not resuscitate and then you looked at their phone and it was tweet after tweet after tweet about how they didn't want to live on this planet anymore and then like you follow that instruction and don't resuscitate them but it turns out like they were really happy and <laughs> in a really good place it's just that their twitter brand was so on point that it killed them yeah. or something yeah. I actually have thought about that before. Like, I've thought, because I don't, I mean, you know that I don't tweet, but I, I fave a lot of other tweets. And usually the tweets that I fave are just, like, very, like, tweets with very dark humor. Yeah. And so I always worry, what if I die in some sort of freak accident and somebody goes through all my Twitter faves and thinks that it was on purpose? Yeah. Like, this is definitely something that I've thought about multiple times where I'm like, maybe I should, like, tweet, or not tweet, but, like, fave something that isn't about death and how I want to die. No, you need to just tweet that exact sentiment <laughs> and then fave it. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, people could read it.